Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And Annie is taking over the mic yet again with a case that I have been waiting for. And spooky season is the perfect time to be doing this case because she is covering. Annie, you want to spill the beans? Yes. The case I have for you today takes us back to the year 1692 in a small town called Salem, Massachusetts. The location of the Salem Witch Trials. I have been so excited to cover this case as well. It's always fascinated me. And yeah, like you said, what better time to talk about it than spooky season? I've never quite understood how a group of girls convinced a town full of adults that witches were living among them. After doing my research and really diving into it, I have a better understanding of the why. It comes down to religion, neighbors savagely turning on neighbors in an attempt to save themselves, a very convincing 11-year-old, and the terrifying fear of the devil himself. This is going to be so good. I remember this case only because of, again, advanced lit. (laughs) It keeps going back. Miss Wheeler, you're getting all the shout outs. But I'm excited to hear beyond what we're told in school, which is just a very short, brief synopsis. So I've been waiting for this case. I'm so excited. I never really learned about this in school. Kind of similar to you, probably. They do a quick overview because this was not a proud moment in American history. And people nowadays look back like, wow, that's pretty shameful that it happened. So towards the end of the episode, I'll talk about what they're doing now in Salem, Massachusetts. But let's go back to the 1600s and talk about the why and the who and just the how. These events took place in a bustling community that stemmed from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which was a group of people that had come to the U.S. from England seeking religious freedom. These people were Puritans and they had strict religious laws. They came to America in hopes of starting a new life, isn't that the dream, under the rule of a new church as they believed the church in England was corrupt. Aren't they all? (laughs) Yeah, aren't they all? (laughs) Although financially the town was doing well, they were constantly facing hardships. This was the era of measles, smallpox, diphtheria, and other diseases, food shortages, and brutally cold winters, not to mention the fear of attacks from neighboring Native American tribes. One might think that these diseases and hardships were a top concern of the colony, and that's not wrong, but around this time, there was a bigger issue swirling the town and instilling fear, the fear of witches, witchcraft, and evil. It's those redheads. They it must is. have taken some redheads red- over on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> those Judas scarlet. Right. With no souls and, yeah, all the spooky things. I totally agree. Because this was a devout and strongly religious community living in near isolation in the mysterious new world, the community of Salem had a heightened sense of fear of the devil. And as a result, it did not take much to convince the villagers that there was evil among them. Belief in the supernatural and specifically in the devil's practice of giving certain humans, aka witches, the power to harm others in return for their loyalty, had emerged in Europe as early as the 14th century and was widespread in colonial New England. When these Puritans came to North America, they brought these fears and ideas with them. Now that we have the historical background laid out, and yes, I gave cliff notes because this is not a history podcast, let's get into our story. I beg to differ. (laughs) We actually do cover a ton of history. And I feel like a lot of our cases are back in the day. But, you know, we do the the current stuff too, but I seem to still find a way to bring it back to like Pixie Stick history. <laughs> <laughs> Always. This is definitely our oldest case. I mean, this is the 1600s. 
which I can't even fathom. The pilgrims and all that kind of stuff. Hard for me to picture it. In January 1692, nine-year-old Elizabeth Paris, otherwise called Betty, began having fits, including violent contortions and uncontrollable outbursts of screaming. Soon, her 11-year-old cousin who was living with her, Abigail Williams, also fell ill and began acting strangely. These fits would cause the two girls to run around the rooms, flailing their arms, ducking under chairs, contorting their bodies, and even trying to run up the chimney. Run up the chimney. Run up the chimney. Reverse Santa Claus. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) These were not just any girls. Betty was the daughter of a minister in Salem named Reverend Samuel Paris. He had recently been appointed the owner of the Salem Church, and his family was pretty well known in the town. The reverend and wife and three children, and also the one niece, Abigail, also lived with two enslaved people by the name of Tatuba and John, and they all lived in the ministry house located in the town. The main kind of character of this story is Abigail Williams, the niece of the reverend. She was around 11 years old when she moved in with the reverend and his family after her parents were killed by Native Americans, according to some sources. This is back in the 1600s. The sources for this whole story are a little bit scattered. And probably a little skewed. Exactly. And pretty biased, too. I mean, you really can kind of see that throughout all the research. There are some really credible sources like the Smithsonian that I leaned on. But in general, this idea of her parents being killed by Native Americans is kind of true, depending on what you read. By mid-February, the condition of Betty and Abigail had worsened, despite attempts to cure them with home remedies, fasting, and of course, prayer. A local physician named Dr. William Griggs came over one night during one of these fits, and he could not find any medical reason for their behavior, and he declared them, quote, under an evil hand. The family quickly turned to religion, and after the girls' conditions continued to worsen, it was determined that the girls were bewitched. Other worthy gentlemen of Salem agreed with the diagnosis. The term worthy gentleman's kind of odd, but basically the higher-ups in the town met with this Dr. Griggs, met with the reverend and said, yep, they're bewitched because they just couldn't find anything else to diagnose them with. Not worthy gentlemen, like like top bachelor in the town. People that had some education. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) After Betty and Abigail were officially diagnosed with bewitchment, other young girls in the community- Wait, I have to interrupt you. Okay. That is an actual, at the time, diagnosis. Yeah, the diagnosis of bewitchment. And I looked up the term nowadays and it's like, it's more of like a romantic term. Right. But back in the day, it was truly like they're bewitched, meaning a witch has cursed a spell upon them. Oh, my goodness. Okay. After Betty and Abigail were officially diagnosed with bewitchment, other young girls in the community were also given this diagnosis. These girls were named Elizabeth Booth, Sarah Churchill, Elizabeth Hubbard, Mercy Lewis, Anne Putnam Jr., Susanna Sheldon, Mary Walcott, and Mary Warren. They raged in ages from 9 to 12, according to History.com. Are they bewitched or are they just getting their periods? <laughs> this is, uh, towards the end, I get into some theories about okay. why and how. And it's a good point that you brought up because I already sensed the hesitation and it's a totally normal feeling. This group of young girls, who later became known as the Affliction Girls, would often get together and play around in the woods. Innocently at first, I'm sure. After all, what is there to do in the 1600s besides play in the woods with your friends? But eventually their playdates turned 
a little bit sinister because they began to practice magic. This is super odd because of how religious the community was. I mean, at this point in time, fortune telling, which is what they were doing, was actually considered demonic activity. I had my rebellious moments as a preteen, and I understand that when you're specifically told to not do something, it's you a do little it. bit more <laughs> enticing, right? I played with a Ouija board, was also scared shitless after playing with said Ouija board. <laughs> and it was kind of thrilling at the time because Growing up, we talk a lot about our faith, at least like growing up in the Catholic church, you do not play Ouija boards. You do not try and talk to demons. And there I was at 12 years old, like speak to me, you know? Right. I remember a lot of like reminders that what you play with or what you experiment with, you don't know what you're opening yourself up to. It was always a common thing I was told in church or in, you know, youth group, things of that nature. So I definitely didn't play with a Ouija board. But do you remember the like Mary Mary light as a feather? Game? Stiff as a board. Stiff as a board. Or Bloody Mary, where you went into a bathroom. Oh, and I shut wasn't the door. doing that. Absolutely I was doing that. Absolutely not. Always into this like, and I'm a scared person in general. Okay, I don't know what I was doing as a kid. Mm-mm. You can float. That's fine. I'll enjoy that. That's mystical and neat. <laughs> but I do not want someone popping up into my mirror. That's a hard pass for me. Terrifying. So one of these games, like I said, was they would attempt fortune-telling methods. And their hopes were that they would discover their future husbands and their future social statuses, which was very important back in this time. That's all women were for. Right. We're still kind of worried about our social status and our, and our, our future husbands, right? In order to play this game, they would use an object called a Venus glass, which allowed them to observe the shape of an egg white as it floated in water. They would take the egg, crack it, the egg white would go in water, and supposedly that would tell them about their future. In the water, the egg would then kind of resemble a symbol, and they would use their magic powers to say, okay, this means X, Y, and Z. They wholeheartedly believed they were predicting their future. In one instance, a girl supposedly found a coffin shape inside of her glass, and she became really frightened after this incident. After these fortune-telling sessions, which usually happened, like I said, in the woods, the girls would become ill, and they would act really abnormally. These are kind of the start of those fits I spoke about earlier. These symptoms range from hiding under furniture and complaining of a fever to barking like a dog and screaming out of pain. Sometimes their bodies would even convulse into unhuman-like positions. This is some Emily Rose-type stuff. 100%. And I saw you giggle at the bark like a dog. <laughs> well, you know, we have a lot of dogs at the house currently, and um, that does not sound appealing. Dogs barking is hard enough, but when your kid starts doing it... And convulsing their bodies. No. that You know what this reminds me of? I'm just picturing this in my head. You've obviously seen The Exorcism. Yes. The only part of that movie that terrified me is when she crawls down the stairs backwards, upside down, that crab Terrifies. walk. Yep. Can you imagine with these Mm-mm. parents, like these little Puritans, they have their bonnets on, they're sitting around churning butter. That's how I picture <laughs> them all with like fluffy little dresses just being like, damn it, let's just hurry this along. Why right. can't this be butter already? <laughs> and their daughter is just levitating and doing all these weird unhuman things. It would be terrifying. You can't just get on be. the internet and Google like, why is my daughter floating down the stairs? Or why is her back somehow arching in a way that it's not humanly possible? Or barking like a dog. Yeah. So after seeing some kind of spell basically overtake the children of the town, the men and women of Salem wanted to find out who had cursed these young girls. They began asking questions and demanding answers. One woman in the town, Mary Sibley, got together with John and Tituba. 
These were the enslaved people living in Reverend Paris's home. She instructed them to make a special witch cake. Supposedly, this cake would expose those who were guilty of witchcraft. To make a witch cake, a sample of the victim's urine was taken and mixed with rye, meal, and ashes. The concoction was then baked into a cake. Yummy. <laughs> Tasteful. <laughs> and we also know from past episodes, urine is not good for you to ingest, no, y'all. it's not. We and it's coming research. back around again. <laughs> witch hunters would feed the cakes to special dogs called familiars. As we know, familiars are thought to be helpers of witches. The belief was that under the spell of the witch cake, these dogs would reveal the name of the party guilty of afflicting the victims. Are they expecting the dog to speak to them? Yes, it's a wild thought. On February 26, 1692, after the first witch cake was made, Abigail Williams accused Tatuba, the same woman who made the witch cake, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne of holding supernatural powers attributed to witches. Abigail named these women as the people she believed were bewitching her and causing her affliction. All three of them were arrested a few days later, either on February 29th or March 1st. There's conflicting information about that date, but they were immediately arrested. And the hope was that the town would finally get some answers behind this weird behavior. The three women were questioned separately, but each were aware of each other. And in a classic prisoner's dilemma, they were turned against each other. None of them wanted to be the title of a witch, so they pointed blame and quote-unquote exposed the other, basically saying, it's not me, it's her, I've seen her do X, Y, and Z, that kind of thing. During Tatuba's examination, she actually confessed that she was a witch, and she warned the court that there were other witches in Salem, but she was unsure of their identity. This is so important because Tatuba plays a very pivotal role in the Salem witch trials, which I had never known. I didn't know that this enslaved you know, woman who lived with the reverend and his family was truly someone saying, I am a witch. There are other witches and you all should be scared. But also an enslaved woman, how much duress is she under when she gives this confession? I get into that. Yeah, you're right on the money. This confession confirmed the colonists' greatest fears that the devil had invaded the colony and sparked a mass hysteria and a massive witch hunt in Salem. After Abigail accused the three women, her friends, the Affliction Girls, also started naming people in the town and claiming that they were the ones bewitching them. So it's a real big case of who done it. And these girls, who are no no one is older than 20 years old, are, you know, blaming everyone and this massive witch trial, this massive witch hunt this started. This is like Lord of the Flies witch style. <laughs> After news of the witch hunt spread throughout the colony, a guy named Reverend Lawson, the previous Salem minister, returned to Salem in mid-March to find out more about the suspicious activities in the village. I can only imagine how quickly word spread throughout New England of these events. Reverend Lawson witnessed and published a firsthand account of one of Abigail Williams' fits in his book titled A Brief and True Narrative of Some Remarkable Passages Relating to Sundry Persons Afflicted by Witchcraft at Salem Village. What a title! Wow, can we get an acronym? Can we I, get an acronym? The fact that the title has a brief that the title's not even brief. No. That's a that's a two-chapter book just in the Truly. title. So this is from the 1600s. So I'm going to paraphrase a little bit and make it easier to understand. On March 19th, I went to Salem Village and stayed at a house near Reverend Samuel Paris's. In the beginning of the evening, I went to give the Reverend a visit. 
When I was there, his niece, Abigail Williams, about 12 years of age, had a grievous fit. At first, she was hurried with violence to and fro in the room, sometimes acting as if she could fly, stretching up her arms as high as she could, and crying. She was then offered the Bible, but she refused, and after that, she ran to the fire and began to throw fire brands about the house and then attempted to run up the chimney. Why the fire's going? She's running up the chimney? Yes. According to his passage, if I was seeing this in real life, I would immediately think of an exorcism or that this girl is possessed by the devil. Yeah, we need to get some holy water in here. (laughs) And she's young. You know, she's only 11 or 12 years old. And the other thing I thought back was during this time, there was no movies like you talked about, at least. There was no exorcism. There was no conjuring. There's no point of reference. There's no point of reference for her to act this way. So I can really see how these fits caused extreme alarm within the community. The following day on Sunday, March 20th, Abigail disrupted a church service in the Salem Village Meeting House several times due to the presence of a different accused witch named Martha Corey. Martha had been accused of witchcraft that previous week, and a warrant had been issued for her arrest. So Abigail's accusations were timely, and they were a little bit planned, in my opinion. Like, there's this witch in here, who's acute, the woman who's accused of being a witch, and Abigail has another one of her fits. It's odd. A week later, the colonists held a public fast due to the suspicious activities in the village, trying to rid Salem of the evilness. During this fast, Abigail claimed she saw witches having a sacrament that day at a house in the village. Abigail said she saw the witches eating and drinking flesh and blood, which appeared as red bread and a red drink. In total, she claimed there were 40 people and two deacons at this house during this quote-unquote sacrifice. She's throwing everyone under the bus. Exactly. And this exact moment in time is when a man named John Proctor kind of called BS on the girls. John Proctor was a landowner in the town, and he was an outspoken critic of the Affliction Girls, often calling them liars and reportedly stating that they should be whipped for their lying. He was not having this. What do you think happened when John voiced his thoughts? He's a, what's a male witch? He's a warlock. A warlock, exactly. Oh. (laughs) Abigail and the other girls turned on John and his wife, and Betty accused them both of witchcraft as well, basically saying, if you're going to speak out against us, we're going to accuse you of being a witch. Once again, they're so young. I just don't understand. I think Abigail was kind of a ringleader in this case. I mean, she was really the one leading the pack. She was like the main character. It's just odd to me that everyone was believing them. But the fear of the devil will make you do anything, I guess. At this point in time, Abigail had accused about 57 people of witchcraft, according to court records. And even though Abigail accused many victims at the beginning of the trials, especially in March, April, and May, She only testified against eight of them, and she gave her last testimony on June 3, 1692. After this date, Abigail seemed to disappear from the court hearings, and it's kind of assumed that the reverend sent her away to prevent her from further participating in the witch trials. When I read sent her away, I can't tell if he means a different location in New England or kind of just kept her at the ministry house and on the property surrounding it. But this or is kind of the end of he's Abigail. starting to pick up that this is not, this is a little suspicious. Could be. Like, anytime my niece goes out in public, oh my gosh, someone's accused of being a witch. Once he sent her away, the madness and the number of accused witches dropped dramatically. So we have these people being accused. What happens after that, right? Like, what's the process of someone being accused of a witch? Once you are accused of this crime, you are summoned to the court of Oyer and Terminer. 
There was a grand jury deciding the fate of these people, but also three men, the lieutenant governor as chief magistrate, the crown's attorney prosecuting the case, and a clerk taking notes. So you're basically on trial for your life with a jury of 12 people, these three men, and then the town just watching you. This is spectacle. Yes. Once a person is found guilty, they are hanged at Gallows Hill. And I want to kind of paint a picture of what their final hours looked like, according to a quote that Reverend Charles Wentworth Upham documented. As the morning fog swirled around the tree trunks and flirted with the flowers, the victims, aka the witches, were removed from the old witch goal and forced into two wheel ox carts. The carts then rumbled down the street before the townspeople of Salem Village, before rolling to a stop somewhere down the hill, end quote. According to local lore, the condemned were then hanged from locust trees before being tossed into a ditch, which would be their final burial place. At the time, it was illegal to give proper Christian burials to those who acted decidedly unchristian-like. Basically, they didn't get a proper burial. They just got thrown into a mass grave? Into a ditch, yeah. And more recently, historians have claimed that the locust trees' hangings were nothing but a rumor— and that these victims were actually hanged from ladders or traditional gallows, it seems unlikely that the locust trees were even strong enough to hold a person. But an author named Francis Hill, he wrote this little sentence that I want to bring out. He said, when the ladder was pushed away from whatever it was leaning on, they died a slow, painful death. How horrible. It sounds like they're hanging them from their neck. Yeah, they are. And their neck would snap and it would be a very slow, painful death. Wait, hold on. I don't think you're understanding me. So there's a different type of, like the traditional hanging that mm -hmm. we think of snaps your neck and it's actually quick. If you put it lower, you basically suffocate to death. You don't have that Oh, instant. and that's why it would be the slow painful versus mm -hmm. the... Oh. So you're basically hanging there choking to death. I cannot imagine. Ooh, with your body weight pressing against your air pipe. That is a horrific way to die. Truly. Now that we know this gruesome process of execution, I want to pause and I want to tell you about some of the people who lost their lives because of these accusations, specifically the first three women to be accused of witchcraft that kind of kicked off the Salem witch trials and the first person to be hanged for being an alleged witch. First casualty of the Salem witch trials, Sarah Osborne. She passed away in a prison in Boston due to poor conditions on May 10th, after being accused at the end of February or early March, depending on what source you read. Sarah was born in Watertown, Massachusetts in the early 1600s. She was a perfect target for a witch hunt. She had been married to a wealthy man named Robert Prince, and after he died, Sarah married their indentured servant. Overall, this was scandalous. I see your face. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even legalize interracial marriage for quite some time. After Not this. interracial, indentured meaning that, she, that this man worked for her. Oh, I'm But sorry. what's scandalous is that they lived together before marriage. And in this community of Puritans, that is an absolute no-no. It's also a huge no-no to marry someone who worked for you. Like your husband dies and you marry the servant. Yeah, that's beneath you. The accusations against Sarah Osborne likely were the product of a powerful suggestion from one family in particular, the Putnam family. Their daughter was one of the affliction girls, Anne Putnam Jr., and her dad was named John. He was the brother-in-law of Robert Prince, Sarah's late husband. Sarah and John were kind of at war over the estate that Sarah had inherited. So my question is, how do you get rid of a sister-in-law that you don't like anymore and that you want her money? Which? You, can, you convince your daughter that she's the witch who's bewitching her. 
What's sad is that Sarah died in prison before her trial. And at the time she was pretty healthy and she just died of like unkept conditions in this prison. It's awful. It is especially awful that I think like the overall theme I've seen with this case is just coercion and convincing social outcasts were the ones who were the witches. The second victim was Sarah Good. She was born in 1653. She was the daughter of a well-to-do tavern owner in Massachusetts named John Solart. In 1669, when she was only 16 years old, her father committed suicide. His 70-acre estate was valued around 500 pounds, and he did not leave any kind of will. Sarah was left with no dowry and had no potential prospects lined up for marriage. At this time, this is a big issue because typically your parents would help you get married and they would give a chicken or a cow, that kind of dowry situation. Eventually, she also married an indentured servant named Daniel Poole, who left her heavily indebted when he died soon after. A lot of death. She is she is struggling with the men around her. She is. And because of all this misfortune, she was bitter. And I don't blame her. I mean, she has just had horrible luck. And the townspeople often say that they saw her muttering under her breath and kind of cursing at them. In this day and age with witches, you think that she's putting a spell on you. Or if you've ever worked in the service industry, you know that that is just commonplace when you're irritated (laughs) with the people around you. (laughs) And it's sad because she was completely shunned due to her low social status and her poorness because she didn't get anything in either of these deaths. You know, for these people that count themselves very religious, these Puritans, they are not showing... love in the way that I would think of Christian brotherhood should be doing. No, they're so judgy. And as soon as you mess up, it's like, you know, this town gossip and the rumor mill is going crazy. It's awful. But because of all of this, just misfortune, Sarah was accused of witchcraft when Abigail and Betty claimed to be bewitched under her hand. There's no reason why they chose her other than she was a lower class than them and she was the social outcast. Isn't that horrible? I just am very glad I'm not a woman in that day and age. Her trial was held that summer, and when she was given the chance to defend herself in front of the 12 jurors in Salem Village, she argued her innocence, proclaiming that Tatuba and Sarah Osborne were the real witches. In the end, however, Sarah was convicted of witchcraft and sentenced to death at the gallows. She was hung on July 29th, along with four other women who were convicted of witchcraft. During her trial and time in jail, Sarah was pregnant, and um, she gave birth to an infant in her jail cell, but the baby died before her mother was hung. Isn't that horrible? Like, I keep saying it's just horrible, so like, I can't imagine this. I just wonder what, if the baby had survived, what they would have done with that child, because I'm sure they would have assumed that it's she the was, offspring of a witch. That's a really good point. And imagine giving birth in a jail cell. I mean, birth in general terrors terrifies me. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's its own thing. But back in the 1600s, Being an accused witch, I'm sure she had no help. No, she's sitting there in a cold, mildewy brick room, I'm sure. Oh, that's that's terrible. It is terrible. The next person I want to talk about is Tatuba, this pivotal person in the Salem Witch Trials. She was the enslaved woman brought to the colonial Massachusetts from Barbados by Samuel Paris, the reverend. What's really sad to me is that Tatuba had been with the Reverend's family for years. I mean, she had helped raise his babies and had worked and prayed alongside the family for around a decade, according to historians. At this point, I would consider her family. I understand that back in the day, that's not how things worked. But she basically raised Betty from the time she was an infant, only to have Betty and her cousin turn against her. They're basically telling their nanny, 
thanks for everything, but you're a witch and we are literally going to sentence you to die. Tatuba is known as one of the star witnesses of the Salem witch trials because like I said earlier, she confessed that the devil had indeed come to her and that she was in fact a witch. She even gave testimony and at one point she said, I must serve him six years and he will give me many fine things. You talked a little bit earlier, Elise, about how distressed she was. And that's something I, I think is interesting because the family that you work for, work for, I'm using that term very loosely because she was enslaved. The daughter blames you for being a witch. Are you going to say like she's lying? Or are you right. going to go then, along with it? And then you have to go back to that family if you're not proven to be a witch? Yeah. Well, she was, she was in jail for over a year. So as soon as she was accused, she was taken to prison. The other thing I'm thinking, though, is... And I'm not sure if Barbados is like this, but when I think of other island nations, there is a lot of like witchcraft in the cult. So this might not have seemed like a big deal to her to be accused Good of being point. a witch because she might be at home being like, yeah, I made you some soup that made you feel better because I know about these herbs or whatever the case. She, I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate. I love No it. pun intended, but <laughs> that perhaps what witchcraft was to her had a very different meaning. That is such a good point. Yeah, because, you know, in some other countries, a witch, the town witch could be a doctor. Right. Making potions. Medicine potions. man, yeah. healer, all of those things. Yeah, that's, and I wonder. But I also think whenever you look around and you see people getting executed, you're just scared for your life. And you'll, you'll say whatever to kind of prolong your life and hopefully kind of just stay around a little bit longer, which is, is exactly what happened. Confessions to witchcraft were rare. And Tatuba's changed everything because she was so convincing and it reaffirmed what the townspeople thought. The devil was right there living among them. Her testimony also assured the authorities that they were on the right track, which only encouraged them and gave credibility to the affliction girls, which is kind of a dagger to my heart. Eventually, Tatuba ran out of things to talk about and she finally went on trial for having partnered with the devil on May 9th, 1693. After 15 harrowing months in prison and 15 months after she was accused. She was kind of doing her own plea deal of sorts. She was. she And she was ratting people out too. I mean, she was like, yep, the Sarahs, they're bad. I did part with the devil, but he promised me these things and kind of giving her side of the story for 15 months. I wonder how many interrogations that was. And isn't it true they would do these wild interrogations like strip searches for birthmarks and all sorts of weird things to prove that you were a witch? Yes, they would look for anything on the women or men to be a witch. And yes, birthmarks were like a horrible, horrible omen. I'd be if dead in a one. second. Yeah. <laughs> Between the it, freckles, oh my god, and the red hair. Yeah, jeez, <laughs> that's its own category. Annie, we, we wouldn't have lasted. I wouldn't have lasted very long. <laughs> you with your Ouija board and me just being right. alive. No, no, no. <laughs> During Tatuba's trial, she actually recanted her confession and all the testimony she gave. She told the court that she had made it up because her master was beating her in an attempt to force a confession. So you were like hammer on the nails with what you were thinking. At this point in time, this has been 15 months since the first accused witch was put into prison. The trial, were they were kind of winding down. The governor of Massachusetts had ordered the arrest to stop. And eventually an anonymous person paid to Tuba's bail and she was free to go. Wild. So like in the beginning, they were executing anyone. And by this point in time, people were realizing, okay, we're killing a lot of people. We're running and no out of one's women. We're running out of women. Everyone's story is different. And everyone besides Tatuba had said that they were innocent. Because she was an enslaved woman with no property and no rights and now 
no family since the reverend had parted ways with her, she was giving nothing. She disappeared from the historical record from this point on. But she played such a role. Like, did you learn about her in your history class by chance? No, it was a lot about the proctors and... Probably the Putnams. And the Putnams. Because they're big, yeah. The the double Ps, we'll call them. (laughs) And just why perhaps this all started to begin with some theories Mm -hmm. about it. The last person I want to talk about today is the first person to die by way of hanging in Salem, Massachusetts, Bridget Bishop. Bridget was born in the 1630s and had been married three different times. Her third and final in marriage. In the 1630s? <laughs> yeah. In the 1630s. I like Bridget. Um, I'll describe her, but she's very just true to herself. And she's like, I don't care what you guys think about me. This is who I am. I want to get married three times. All my other husbands have died. I'm moving on. After the deaths of her first two husbands, she married a guy named Edward Bishop, who was a lumber worker. Although Bridget had been accused by more individuals of witchcraft than any other defendant, it was not so much the way she acted that caused her to be the first witch hanged in Salem, as it was her flamboyant lifestyle and exotic manner of dress. Good job, Bridgie. We like her. (laughs) Despite being a member of the town's church, and she was in good standings up until her death, Bridget often kept the gossip mill busy with stories of her public fighting with her various husbands. She was also taken to court for some of those fightings. That's how bad they got. Oh, boy. She would entertain guests in her home until late in the night. She would drink and play the forbidden game of shovelboard. Not fortune telling, shovelboard and not shuffleboard. I don't know what shovelboard is, but she was playing it and she was being frowned upon for that. You're saying shovel, like dig in the dirt shovel? Yes. I wonder if this is like old school version of curling without the ice. It could be. You just see them like digging. (laughs) My hole's getting bigger than your hole. (laughs) And drinking and entertaining guests. Like she loved that party, all that kind of thing. But she also was the mistress of two thriving taverns in town. You know what? Bridget. I like her. I do too. I want to party with Bridget. Her blatant disregard for the respected standards of Puritan society made her a prime target for accusations of witchcraft. And to that I say, when you look at the community, this girl would stick out like a sore thumb. Absolutely. What's wild is that Bridget had never seen or met any of her accusers until her questioning, which just goes to show it truly was her reputation that got her into this predicament. She had no idea who Betty and Abby were, or any of the affliction girls for that matter. Oh, that's an interesting rumor mill they have going that they can accuse someone they've never met before. Right? Bridget was charged, tried, and executed all within eight days. On June 10th, as crowds gathered to watch, she was taken to Gallows Hill and executed by the sheriff, George Corwin. She displayed no remorse and professed her innocence at her execution. Bridget's death did not go unnoticed in Salem, as it was the first time a woman was hung. And some men are apparently missing her too. Yeah. (laughs) And like the tavern, like this was a huge, you know, ripple effect of what happened. But after she was hung, the court took a short recess, the trial slowed down, and a month passed before there were any more executions. One judge even resigned, having become really dissatisfied with the court's methods. And the governor, Phipps, had doubts about the methods of the court, and he actually went to Boston to consult the ministries there as to what should be done with the rest of the accused. So some people were really turned off by these hangings, rightfully so. Annie, this is off topic, but I'm like bubbling at the seams to ask. Obviously, times are different these days, but would you go to the execution? Yes. You would? I would. Oh. Would you? Absolutely not. I think I would go because if they're doing this 
wild witch hunt. If I wasn't there, would I look guilty? Oh, like the whole sense. town's going. I don't want to be the one like, where's Annie? She's at home. Why? Oh, you know? I just can't imagine. Even I mean, when it I would think, be horrible. We always do these throughout history, all these public spectacles out of death. But I don't – but then again, I watched the UFC and that's pretty brutal. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, hopefully no one's dying in that. But, you know, you're watching someone get the piss kicked out of them. Yeah. Oh, uh-oh. I might need to rethink this. I, I, want, I want everyone to tell us if they would go. We'll put because a poll. Because I think it's really an interesting kind of thing about humanity, this morbid curiosity we all have to some degree. It's just – it's interesting. I don't know if I could watch someone be I hanged. have like the worst curiosity when it comes to that kind of stuff. Like I follow this Instagram account and it's basically animals just killing each other in like the most violent ways and I'm just hooked. And Annie. I don't know why. <laughs> okay, maybe I shouldn't say that out loud. <laughs> Um, if I go missing, call Andy. Right. <laughs> That's terrifying. It is. By the fall, somewhere between 144 and 185 witches and wizards had been named. 19 men and women had been hanged and one had been pressed to death. What is yes. pressed to death? I said pressed to death. An accused man named Corey Giles was pressed to death, which is a medieval English customs where rocks are gradually piled upon a person to literally press answers out of them. But it ended up killing him. Basically, they're like suffocating you by your so chest. So he's laying on the ground and they're just like one rock. He's not saying anything. Two rocks. He's still not saying anything. They just keep going. And they did it for three to four hours of just putting things on his body until his chest cavity truly collapsed. Oh, I can't. My head can't go there. That makes my stomach upset. It's horrible. The main family I cover today was the Paris family. There are a ton of other families involved in Salem witch trials. They really stood out to me because, number one, it was a reverend. So figuring out how religious this community was was intriguing. But also the fact that under his roof was Betty, his daughter, and then Abigail, the main accuser. So whatever happened to these people? After the witch trials ended, several members of Reverend Samuel Paris's congregation fought for years to have the reverend dismissed from the church due to his role in the Salem witch trials. In November of 1694, Reverend Paris responded to these claims by writing an essay titled Meditations for Peace, another Excuse odd title, you, sir. <laughs> in which he stated that God tried to teach him a lesson by allowing the witch hunt to begin in his family. Oh, BS. Pish posh, Reverend. I don't think this loving God that you're supposedly serving is going, oh, yep, 145 people have to die so that I can teach this one. Like, how big is your ego, Reverend, that uh, your Huge. life is worth, your or lesson in your life is worth 145 people's death? Okay, so it wasn't 145 people who died. It was 20. I'm not going to say only 20, but that's how many were accused. accused. Okay. And it was the higher, the number's actually higher. It was around 200. But I think in the beginning of all this, he probably was like, oh, what an honor to have my daughter and niece be the ones who are ridding this town of this evil. And then you notice, like in May and June, he stopped having Abby go to the, uh, the trials and he kind of hushed her away. Let's just, as a life lesson, if your kid is climbing up a chimney, they're probably not a prophet. Mm mm. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't trust them. Tempo pole. <laughs> so his acknowledgments did nothing to help him or his cause because in 1697, the congregation won and Reverend Paris was dismissed from his job as a minister of the church. He left Salem Village shortly after that, taking his family with him. Neither Abby nor Betty ever apologized for their roles in the Salem witch trials, 
The only person who actually did was Ann Putnam. She wrote this long apology and gave it to the church about how she apologized and all this kind of stuff. Although Betty Paris later married and raised a family in Sudbury, Massachusetts, there are no records indicating what happened to Abigail Williams after the Salem witch trials ended. There was an eyewitness who said they saw Abigail Williams being a prostitute in Boston, Massachusetts when she got older, but that's simply hearsay. All in all, the trials lasted a little over a year, and more than 200 people were accused of witchcraft, with 20 people dying, 19 by hanging and one by being pressed to death. Okay, so we have to talk about the why, right? Because these girls were all exhibiting these weird symptoms, like what was going on? And it's now 2022, and a lot of theories have come up in regards to the affliction girls and their odd behavior. My first reaction was like, there's no way they were all faking this, right? There's no way that someone can contort their body in a weird way and convince people. Here's the thing. Psychosomatic symptoms, I don't know. I, I could almost believe it. Like kids are so open to weird stuff happening around them or like the power of suggestion when it comes to children that I might actually believe that they could do things that they didn't even know they were capable of. I like that thought. Modern theories about what was affecting these girls have ranged from epilepsy to child abuse to boredom to ergot poisoning. Supposedly, ergot poisoning happens when you eat grain products, particularly rye, that's contaminated with this type of fungus. This theory makes sense because one of the Puritans' main staples of their diet was cereals and breads made of the harvested rye. Convulsive ergotism causes violent fits, a crawling sensation on the skin, vomiting, choking, and hallucinations. In fact, the hallucinogenic drug LSD is a derivative of ergot. So like you think about people who are tripping on LSD and what they're doing, and these girls, their symptoms are kind of similar, right? And they're just getting poisoned. They're just all on a bad trip. Yeah, a horrible trip. And then they're being told, well, you're bewitched. So trying to have some empathy and trying to put myself in their shoes. If you have all these elders of the town saying that a witch put a curse on you and you be truly are experiencing this, right? It's, it is terrifying. And you don't have a reason why they're giving you one. Again, kids are open to suggestion, mm-hmm. and especially if you are having symptoms like this. That'd be terrifying. And you believe people like reverends and doctors and higher ups like you trust them. There also is another speculation that I think is really interesting. I talked a lot about how the girls would go into the woods and do these fortune-telling sessions. There's speculation that that when they would go into the woods, they were exposed to some kind of fungus. And since initially a lot of their fits happened after the woods, they would bring kind of like that poison back into their house, and that would start the fits. So who knows, like if it's a poison oak type thing that they're inhaling— They were playing with egg whites and water. I mean, maybe they were having some herbs put in there, you know. And still, some say it's possible that a few of the accusers were purposely faking their symptoms. I don't know what caused it. I think the ergot poisoning is the most likely because if they were exposed to this grain and they were just getting super sick, it kind of makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Huh. I had never heard that theory, but I've never heard of ergot for Christ's sake. I thought it was a bird. I think it is still... (laughs) Wow, we have a lot of beauty and brains on this podcast. (laughs) Right. Wow. But it's... That's really interesting because it's not like they, again, they can't Google these things and be like, oh, what could be causing these symptoms? So if you're on limited information, you're in this very puritanical culture, it would make sense. Mm-hmm. Huh. I came across an interesting story in the Smithsonian Magazine that I have to talk to you about. 
In 2009, Erin O'Connor and her husband, Darren, bought a house overlooking a wooded ledge in Salem, Massachusetts. The couple had no idea why this parcel stood empty. The scrubby lot lay tucked between houses on Pope Street and within sight of a large Walgreens. Nothing much to look at. People began to stop by and take pictures of this empty lot in the winter of 2016, and the couple began to wonder why. So, like, picture your house next to this lot, and everyone starts taking pictures, and you're like, there's a Walgreens. There's nothing here. If the couple had been there in 1692, they would have known this rocky ledge on the parcel next door to their house was the site of mass execution. This is where the bodies of people hung as witches were dumped, at this low spot beneath the ledge known as the crevice. And in the night, when the hangings were over, locals heard the sounds of grieving families who snuck over to gather up their dead relatives and secretly bury them somewhere else. Remember, they could not have Christian ceremony. Yeah. But imagine moving into a house and being like, why is everyone taking these pictures? And then be like, oh, people were hung here and their bodies were thrown. I wonder if they had like weird hauntings or experiences in the I totally house. think so. that would be some not sacred ground. I want to do a Salem Witch Trial tour so bad. Go to Massachusetts so on like a spooky fun. fall day and do it. I think it'd be amazing. But this is, like I said before, not a good part of America's past. And for a long time, the people of Massachusetts tried to kind of cover it up. No one really wanted to have any kind of memorials around it. But that all changed on July 19th, 2017, when the Salem mayor dedicated a memorial below Proctor's Ledge, which was this little area, to the victims of the Salem Witch Trials. The date coincides with the first of three mass executions there. On the same day, 325 years earlier, five women, Sarah Good, Elizabeth Howe, Susanna Martin, Rebecca Nurse, and Sarah Wilds were hanged from a tree on the ledge, and their bodies fell into this crevice where the memorial now marks their name. Finally, the mayor decided to put some kind of memorial there for these victims, because they are victims. They were accused witches who were hung. Yeah, Bridges is going about her business having a cocktail or two. <laughs> Playing shovelboard. <laughs> I got to figure out what shovelboard is and we got to play it. <laughs> no, within eight days. So this is still considered an extremely shameful chapter of American history. And today I just wanted to kind of remember those 20 men and women who were accused and convicted of being witches because that was so wrong. And it's such a bad part of American history, but we got to talk about it. Well, and let's just use this as a reminder of why the separation between church and state is so very important. So important. That was crazy. I did not know about a lot of the little facts about this and the why behind maybe these girls getting suggested certain people and those coming out maybe to get property, to get that little hood rat Bridget out of the way, mm -hmm. or as they saw it, I think she's great. And back to Abigail Williams, 11, 12 years old, convincing everyone. That is wild to me. There's part of me that wonders if they're just these girls just wanted attention. I think that has a big part of it. I really like do. Maybe one or two of them had this ergot poisoning and the rest were like, oh, look how much, you know, the townspeople are paying attention to her. They don't have TV to keep them entertained. Maybe right. they're just a little bit jealous of the other girls. It's it's very, very interesting. Very impressionable ages as well. Absolutely. Like, like, like with Ann Putnam having her dad probably say like, hey, your aunt yeah, she's bewitching you because she's mad at us about this war we're having over her estate and will. It's like, oh, that's why I don't feel very well because of my aunt. 
and she's the one who did it, you know. Well, I appreciate that little journey back in history because, again, this is something I learned about, but not to the extent that you covered it today. So thank you for that little history lesson. Annie is going to be back later this week to bring you even more spooky ooky content. She's also going to be at my place tomorrow where we will be setting up the new... We don't have a name for it yet. (laughs) Help us. Help us name it. The new room that we will be filming in and recording in. We're so excited about that. And then I'm coming to you Sunday to talk all things torture. We are going back, back, back in time yet again to discover just how deplorable humans are and how creative our brains can be in methods of torture. It's an intense one, I'll tell you that. And we are actually going to be covering the worst way to die, most historians would agree. And it has a little something to do with milk and honey, which sounds like a sweet treat, but not in this case. So get yourself comfy cozy. We are coming at you twice a week until the end of the month where we have some big announcements coming up. But as always, we will be sure to see you every Sunday. Until then. 